All right, brothers and sisters, if you will take out your Bibles with me. Let's get into God's Word. Once again, into the book of Micah. Micah chapter 7 today. If you are not familiar with the way a Bible is laid out, uh, you can find Micah chapter 7 on page 928 in the blue Bible on the pew in front of you. We'll be covering verses 1 through 10 today. Micah chapter 7. Now picture this with me. You've done it yet again. You've fallen to sin. That sin that has plagued you. That sin that you have told yourself you were never going back to. It's Saturday night. You feel dejected. You feel alone. You feel shame. You feel guilt. You're questioning whether or not you're actually a Christian. You're questioning your own love for God. You're having all kinds of harmful thoughts about yourself. Where do you go from there? What do I do now? How should we respond after we've sinned? We talk a whole lot in church about how to prevent sin, how to avoid it, how to strengthen ourselves against it, and rightfully so, right? We do not make peace with sin in our lives with Jesus Christ, in our walk with Christ. We're not to make peace with sin, but we know from Scripture that none of us are going to be sinless. We learn in the first chapter of 1 John that if anyone says he's without sin, he is a liar and he's making God out to be a liar. And so we've got to be realistic about this. We don't make peace with sin, and yet we are tying our our hand behind our backs if we never talk about what to do after we've sinned, right? In our effort to prevent sin and strengthen ourselves against it, we hardly ever talk about what do we do after we've sinned. And that's a reality for all of us. It's going to be a reality for all of us, no matter how long we've walked with Christ. How do we react? How do we respond after we have sinned? Let's read our text today. Micah 7. We'll take verses 1 through 10, but we're going to actually focus in on verses 7 through 9. Woe is me! For I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, 
I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. Now, like I said, we're going to focus in today on verses 7 through 9. But I want you to notice verses 1 through 6, how he paints a picture of rampant sin. Sin has gotten so bad in that day and in that culture. So bad that you're not to trust anyone. Don't even trust your neighbors. Don't even trust the one lying in your arms. Don't trust the people of your own household. Everyone is set on sin. The godly, verse 2, has perished from the earth. Now, many times we might look at our own society today and say, this is, this is us. We are living in this time right now. But I want you to notice how Micah does not keep the focus on everyone else's sin. He does not keep the focus on how horrible everyone else is, how horrible it is out there. No, Micah is dealing with the Lord. Micah is coming to the Lord because of his own sin. That's what we're here to do today. We're here to deal with God. To deal with God because of our sin. And to ask, how should we respond after We have sinned. Now, notice in verses 7 through 9, there are notes of hope and notes of strength in the tone of the text. Every time you're reading the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, it's important to get the tone of the text right. Not just the words, not just the accurate understanding of what it says, but the tone of the text is important as well. And so you you get hints of strength and hope, but we also see statements of sorrow and grief. So, for instance, verse 8. I have fallen, he says. I sit in darkness. Or verse 9, I have sinned against him. Have you felt like this before? I have. I sit in darkness because I have fallen once again. I have sinned against my Lord, my Lord that I claim to love so much. You see, one of the great comforts of God's word is that it doesn't make things out to be rainbows and roses all the time. There is nowhere in the Bible where you can find it will say, once you become a Christian, everything's going to be great and easy and happy. Now, the, the, the refreshing thing about scripture is it looks stuff like sin and despair and grief and shame and sorrow in the face and takes a realistic look at it. The Psalms especially look those things, despair, grief, and suffering, right in the face. And since we know that all scripture is inspired by God himself, so no matter if it's Micah writing his book, no matter if it's Moses writing the the Pentateuch, no matter if it's Paul or, or John in the New Testament, no matter who's writing, they're the words of God, right? And because they're the words of God, the great comfort in all of this is when you find passages that talk about our sin and our despair and our shame and our, our, our suffering and our hopelessness at times, 
you know that those words are coming from God. God understands that we will feel like this at times. God knows we will feel like this at times. He gave you words that you could go to for strength and for hope during times like that, in places like Micah, in places like the Psalms. And so since we know that all Scripture is inspired by God himself, when we find words like this, we take great comfort in them because God knows. He knows we will sin. He knows we will feel guilty after we do. He knows and he understands. He is more compassionate and gentle than you know. I want to spend some time this morning looking at the ways that we are tempted to respond after we have sinned. Ways that we are tempted to respond in an unbiblical manner. Ways that if we do respond in those ways, they'll they'll lead to our harm. But then... I want, to, I want to spend time right after we look at each one of those ways to look at ways instead where we could respond biblically in a, a way that God has prescribed to us to respond after we've sinned in a way that leads to our good and not to our harm. So we'll look at a few here. Number one, one of the ways that we are tempted to respond after we sin is we try to run away and hide from God. We try to run away and hide from God. So you think things like, How can I go to church after what I just did? How can I read the Bible and pray after what I just did? Or we think thoughts like, if I avoid God, I can avoid facing the truth and the guilt. If you remember, this is what Adam and Eve did immediately after they sinned. What did they do? They went and hid, hid from God. Now, When we read that passage for Adam and Eve, on the surface, it seems ridiculous, right? Hiding from God, what what are you thinking? Like, like he's not going to know where you are? He's God. What what, what are you doing? And, And yet, when I turn that back around on myself, I think, oh, of course, this is human nature. We all tend to do this. We all want to run and hide from God after we've sinned. But look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. Micah gives us a wonderful picture of what we should do after we have sinned. He says, as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And so he's saying, instead of running away from God, we should run to him. After we've sinned, instead of running away from God, we should run to him. Running away from God or hiding from him is foolishness when we really think about it. It's foolishness. He knows everything. He sees everything. There is no creature in all creation that is hidden from his sight. Nothing we do is hidden from him. In fact, he knows the deepest, darkest secrets of your heart that you've never told anyone else. He knows it all. There's no sense in making a pretense when we come to God. That's why when we pray, The Bible talks about it. There's no point in trying to sound more holy than you are, as if you can trick God into thinking that you're you're more devout. No, God values honesty because he knows. He sees right through you. But it's also foolishness because do we really think running away from God is going to help us? Do we really think it's going to do us any good, avoiding him? What's it going to get us? We're avoiding the truth. We're avoiding his restoration. We're avoiding the only one who can actually deal 
with sin. When we run away from God, we're, we're saying to ourselves, I'm going to try to go deal with it somewhere else. I'm going to try to go take care of it somewhere else. You can't. There's nowhere else you can go where you can actually deal with sin. Much better to come to him for forgiveness and restoration and a clear conscience. Running away from God is a misunderstanding fundamentally of two things. When we run from God, we are misunderstanding two things. Number one, we're misunderstanding who God is. And number two, we're misunderstanding what the gospel says. When we run away from God, we're misunderstanding who God is. Think about this. God is the God who who says of himself in Exodus 34, when God passes by Moses on Mount Sinai, he declares his name and he says, this is who I am. And what does God say when he tells us who he is? He says, the Lord, the Lord. What was that? The Holy Spirit? Uh, Sorry. Um, He says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, Exodus 34, compassionate and gracious God. He says he is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That's how God describes himself. That's how he describes himself. This is the God that we serve. This is the God that we have. This is the father that we have. Gracious, compassionate, forgiving, loving, understanding, slow to anger. When you run away from that God, you're not understanding who he is. He understands He knows you're going to sin. Psalm 110 says he remembers that you are dust. He knows that's what we're made of. He knows we're weak. He knows everything about how we fall and when we fall and when we're more prone to fall. And there is no way that he expects you to be perfect all the time. You need to hear that. God does not expect you to be perfect. God longs for your perfection and he will bring it about one day. You will be perfected one day. But he does not expect you to be perfect. What he does expect of you is for you to fight. He does expect for you to repent. He does expect for you to forsake your sin and turn from it and to do what you can. But he does not expect perfection The only one who was ever perfect was Jesus. And so it's a misunderstanding of who God is when we run away from him. It's a misunderstanding of what the gospel says when we run away from God. Because what does the gospel tell us? Jesus has already died and suffered for your sins. What are you going to do? Go punish yourself? Jesus has already suffered for that sin. God did not send his son to the cross At great pain to himself, God did not punish his own son at the cross so that you would avoid him after you sinned. He did it so that you could come back to him. He wants you to come back to him. Notice the difference between two ways that many of us and many people who are teenagers, many of us when we were teenagers, notice the difference between two ways that we react to times when we make a mistake. Think back to when you were a teenager. Maybe you are one. You make a big mistake out and about on the weekend, right? Think about the difference between these two. Number one, I've messed up. My dad's going to kill me. Versus, I've messed up. I need to call my dad, right? I need him to come fix this. I need help. I need my heavenly father 
Not just when I'm attaining. I need my heavenly father to fix what I've gotten myself into. I need him to rescue me. I need him to save me. I need him to get me out of this. That's the difference between the gospel and the works religion that many people think Christianity is, right? Many people think Christianity is, I've, I've sinned, God's going to kill me. Right? No, it's, it's I've, I've sinned, I've messed up. I need him. That's the gospel. Avoiding him is only going to make things worse. He wants to deal with it. He wants to restore you. Second, when we sin, we are tempted to stay in the darkness. We're tempted to stay in the darkness. You probably know this feeling well. The only reason I say that is because I know this feeling well. You feel the guilt and the shame. But instead of coming out of it, you stay in it. You embrace it in a weird way. And it leads to a downward spiral emotionally. Where you cut yourself off, not only from God, but from those who love you. Have you experienced this? Now, shame and guilt are real after sin. It's real, right? We're not acting like these things shouldn't happen. The world tells us that when we do things that the Bible would consider sin, the world tells us you shouldn't feel shame and guilt. Get away from that. Quit, quit feeling like that. That's a complex you've got inside of yourself. That's what the world's telling us. But no, shame and guilt are real, and they are good, and they are meant to lead us back to God. But that's just it. The shame and the guilt, they're meant to lead us back to God, not away from him. You see, Satan is deceiving in the way that he tempts us to sin. He lies to us. And he turns it on us once we've done it. Before you sin, Satan wants you to believe it's no big deal. That's what he's whispering in your ear. Before you sin, when temptation comes, this is no big deal. You deserve this. What's it going to hurt? Right? He wants you to believe it's not a big deal before you sin. But after you sin, he turns a 180 and tries to make you feel like it's unforgivable. Like you can't come back to God after that. You can't find forgiveness and restoration after what you just did. He's lying both times, but he, it's completely different. Right? And we felt this. You know what I'm talking about. I think we've all felt this. Think about Adam and Eve. Once again, let's go back to the garden. After they've sinned, what did they try to do? They tried to cover themselves. Cover themselves with fig leaves, right? And eventually, they have to learn from God that they cannot cover themselves properly. It takes God to cover them properly. God has to give them proper coverings. He gives them animal skins. They tried to cover themselves, and God says, no, you can't do it. You can't cover your sin. Only I can cover your sin, God says. Notice verses 8 and 9 in our text. I want you to see verses 8 and 9, how it talks about the Lord. In verse 8, it says, The Lord will be a light to me. And in verse 9, it says, He will bring me out into the light. Now this is when Micah said, I, I sit in darkness, right? And remember this temptation, we want to stay in the darkness. We are tempted to stay in the darkness after we've sinned. But this says, the Lord will be a light to me, and the Lord will bring me out into the light. Now what's interesting about this is, and I find this fascinating, God is both, God is both the one who brings us into the light, and he is the light himself. Did you see that? 
Verse 8, the Lord will be a light to me. He is the light. And then verse 9, he will bring me out into the light. He's both. He's the one who brings us out into the light, and he is himself the light. Let's look at those in just a little bit more detail. God is the one who brings us out into the light. Right? God is the one who does it. He brings us into the light. In verse 8, when it says, when I, shall, when I fall, I shall rise, that is not a defiant, self-reliant statement of our own strength and willpower. That's not what that is. Don't misunderstand that. The world loves that stuff. The world loves it when we say things like, I'm not going to let anyone bring me down. Right? I'm not going to let anyone come against me. I don't care what my enemies do. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to defend myself. No one can hold me down. The world loves that stuff, right? I mean, our culture is full of it. Here I stand. Here I stay. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. Anybody? You know what I'm talking about here? Okay. But, but seriously, I mean, it's all over the place. Helen Reddy, for those of you who are a little bit older, once saying, I am strong, I am invincible, I am woman, hear me roar, right? Our culture loves this self-reliant willpower. I'm going to pick myself up in my own strength. You can even find a lot of this in contemporary worship songs that are less songs about the glory and grace of God and more about how we won't let anything stop us. It almost sounds like we're worshiping ourselves sometimes. But it says, God will bring me out into the light. And so our confidence that we will rise is because God will pull us out of the pit. God will bring us into the light. But not only does it say God will bring us into the light, but verse 8 says God is the light himself. God is the light. It reminds us of 1 John 1.5 where it says God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Or this very intriguing verse from Psalm 36, verse 9, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. I mean, just think about that one for a minute. In your light, God's light, do we see light. It's like God is the light, and he's the one who brings us into the light. He's the light himself. He brings us into the light, but it's the light of himself. He is the light that helps us see clearly. He is the source of all truth. And you won't find light for your soul anywhere else. When we're tempted to stay in the darkness, it's like, maybe I can find some light somewhere else apart from God. You won't find it. It's all fake. It's fake light. All light apart from God's light is fake Light. You can substitute the word truth for light there. It's fake. You won't find it. You can substitute the, the word satisfaction for light there. You won't find it anywhere but the Lord. The only path to happiness and joy is returning to God. Don't stay in the darkness. I will go to the Lord. I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the Lord. Third, another temptation is we try to avoid the consequences Because there are consequences for our sins, brothers and sisters. When we sin, it has consequences. All sin has consequences. Even the ones that you you would consider as private. But in our effort to avoid God, we're also trying to avoid the consequences of our sin. I want you to look back at the beginning of verse 9. 
Verse 9, it says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. I will bear the indignation of the Lord. Now, notice the wonderful juxtaposition here in this small text, verses 7 through 9, of God's mercy on the one hand and his indignation on the other. Indignation is a word for anger. Indignation is a word for for wrath, right? But it's, it's like Micah is saying, I'm going to bear up under whatever consequences my sin has got, gotten me from the Lord. I'm going to take whatever the Lord gives to me. Whatever discipline the Lord brings to me, I'm going to bear it. The most honoring way to come to God after we've sinned is accepting whatever discipline he wants to give us. Why? Well, because we trust him. We trust him as a father who loves us right? We trust him. I'd rather be in God's hands under his discipline than out there being fooled by Satan that everything is fine. Because I'll tell you what Satan wants. Satan wants you to be on a comfortable slide to hell. That's what Satan wants. Satan wants you to be on your way to hell and to feel great about it and to feel at peace about it, and to feel like nothing's wrong, to feel like everything is fine. That's exactly where he wants you, right? I would much rather be in the hands of the Lord under his discipline than there with Satan deceiving me, lying to me, telling me everything is fine. Remember Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 says the Lord disciplines those he loves, he disciplines us for our good, it says. It says no discipline is, is uh, pleasant at the time. But God disciplines us for our good so that it can yield a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have gone through it. Now, how will the Lord discipline you? I have no idea. I have no idea. I mean, if you're looking for that answer, I'm, I, I can't give it to you. He, he has a, a myriad of means at his disposal. He works differently with different people. I have no idea how the Lord will discipline any of us for our sins, but we want to make sure that we are not running from his good discipline. Don't run away. Don't avoid the consequences. Run back to him and, like Micah, accept whatever discipline he has for us because it's for our good. I will bear the indignation of the Lord, he says, because I have sinned against him. Now, finally, a fourth way that we are tempted to respond after sin, a way that leads to our harm, we try to justify ourselves. When we sin, we try to justify ourselves to God, to others, to ourselves even. We give excuses for our sin, even if only in our own minds. We try to make it okay. We tell ourselves all the reasons why it's not as bad as it feels. But I want you to look at verse 9 in our text one more time. And notice how centered on God and his activity verse 9 is. Verse 9 is a supremely God-centered verse here. Notice what he says. I'll bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until, watch this, he pleads my cause... And he, implied there, executes judgment for me. He will bring me out into the light. I shall look upon his vindication. 
It's God, God, God. It's centered on God the whole time. His pleading, His judgment, His light, His vindication. It's all Him and His activities. Now notice how it says, the first one there, He pleads my cause. I'll bear the indignation of the Lord until He pleads my cause. What do you mean, He pleads my cause? To whom? Who is is God going to plead my cause to? How does that even make sense? I think the the most helpful passage in Scripture to help us understand this is Romans 8, 33 through 34. Be up on the screens. Let me read it to you. Paul says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, that, the end of verse 34 right there is the key. What is Jesus doing right now? We know what he did. What's he doing right now? Right now, Jesus sits at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding for us. Interceding for us. What's that mean? Well, it means Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. And so... The wrath of God does not come upon us because sitting right next to God is the one with the scars. He's still got them. It's an amazing thing. Absolutely amazing doctrine of the Bible that before all eternity passed, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, you might call him Christ, existed, right? But the the man Jesus didn't exist until Mary had her baby or until he was conceived in Mary, right? And then all of a sudden, the human being, Jesus, exists. But Jesus, when he became a man, Jesus was both God and man at the same time. It's one of the mysteries and wonders of the incarnation and the Christmas season. He's fully God, fully man at the same time. All of a sudden, that second person of the Trinity, who has existed from eternity past, has a human nature and a body. But what's really interesting is that after he is crucified, and after he raises back from the dead... For the rest of eternity, Jesus keeps his body. He keeps it. It's it's an amazing thing because he didn't have one before. And he'll keep it for all eternity. And not only that, when he was raised, he had the scars. He was raised to a glorified body, but then he, he kept the scars. And now he sits at the right hand of the throne of God. It says, interceding for sinners like me. And so... As Satan so often does, when Satan comes to God to accuse us of the sins that we have committed and the guilt that we deserve and the punishment that we deserve, Satan comes to God with all of his accusations. Revelation chapter 13 calls Satan the accuser. That's one of his names. It's how he is known. And when he accuses us before God, all of it might be true. If he comes before God with a laundry list of all the things John Davis has done, it all might be true. But even if he comes with only the truth and the worst of it, none of it sticks. Because Jesus is right there with the scars interceding for me. None of it sticks. It doesn't matter what he accuses me of. Even if it's all true, Jesus died for that. Jesus suffered for that. It is paid for. And so, rejoice not over me, O my enemy. Jesus has died for my sins. I am safe 
under the arms of Jesus. I am safe under the blood of Jesus. Notice in verse 9 there, it says, He pleads my cause, and then it says, And he executes judgment for me. What's that mean? How does God execute judgment for me? At the cross. He executed judgment for me at the cross. He executed his only son. He executed him. He poured judgment out on Jesus for me. And so we go back to Romans 8.33 where it says there is only one who justifies. You are tempted to justify yourself after you sin. But you can't. There's only one who justifies. Only one who justifies. And that is God the Father. And so we come to him after we sin because we know we can't cover our sin. We can't justify ourselves. There's only one who can do that. And it's God, through the blood of his son Jesus, shed on the cross for you. That's the message of the gospel this morning. And that right there, brothers and sisters, is why we don't avoid God after we sin. It's why we go back to him rather than running away from him. We're going to spend a couple minutes now in prayer. A couple minutes of response to the Lord. How do you need to respond to what the Lord has put on your heart this morning? That's why we give this time, right? I, I, I really do not know what the Lord has put on your heart. I know his word, but how has the Lord driven that into your heart and your conscience and in your mind right now? So we're going to spend a a few moments in silent prayer so that we can all respond to God, so that we can all speak to him after he has spoken to us. And then after that, we'll have a time where we come back and sing an invitation song, and anyone who needs to respond publicly can do so at that time. So let's pray.